What if I told you that you can support your blood pressure and healthy CoQ10 levels with two chews a day? The new Super Beats Heart Chews Advanced is now supercharged with CoQ10. That's like getting CoQ10 for free. Our powerful blend of beetroot, grapeseed extract, and CoQ10 supports your cardiovascular health. Visit RadioBeats.com and find out how you can get a free 30-day supply on bundles and save 15% with the promo code DEAL. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You are listening to Over and Back's Basketball Mysteries of the 1970s. Today's mystery is, how did Spencer Haywood change everything? Welcome to Over and Back. I am Jason, and uh, this is part two of my conversation with uh, Rainus Lattice of the Handle Podcast, um, talking about the battles off the court between the ABA and the NBA in the first part, we talked about the formation of the ABA, the first antitrust suit, and the some of the early battles between the uh, two leagues. Uh, this episode, we're going to talk about uh, Spencer Haywood and his revolutionary case and how it changed player rights in the country, as well as uh, the ABA and NBA coming very close to a merger before the Oscar Robertson lawsuit derailed that and much more so uh check it out but first we want to tell you about our sponsor the replay with l and al have you ever wondered how your favorite nba players spend their time off the court if so the replay with l and al is a perfect podcast for you they discuss everything from endorsement deals and power couples to fashion choices and social media listen in every week and we promise you'll be hipper than joel and bead's pregame dance routines Check out the replay on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcast, or check it out at the Step Back. And now Rainus and I are joined in progress discussing Spencer Haywood. So the NCAA had a four-year rule preventing players from leaving for the pros until the class graduated. Of course, other sports like baseball, golf, and tennis players were free to play coming out of high school, which you know everyone kind of saw the hypocrisy in that, but this was just the way that the system was uh, set up and a lot of people defend it some people defend it still um so denver signed um haywood who was a sophomore from the university of detroit he had been dominant in college he also had hel- helped uh, the u.s uh to a gold medal in 1968 with a you know uh, a fairly weakened team there were you know a lot of um uh, a lot of the top um black athletes did not play on that team he kind of came out of nowhere and led that team and it was extremely dominant um the aba sort of formulated an argument that um haywood was a hardship case and didn't have uh needed to earn money sooner than after his college class to support his mother and nine siblings to kind of make this somewhat palatable to the general public who would you know who would feel like the um who would be against this who would feel like this is the idea of the professionals taking advantage of the college players and you know all that uh, amateurism that sort of baked into this um argument that at least gave them some you know justifiable cover for that uh system even though as we'll see it you know even they admitted that it was pretty much a sham yeah a lot of people involved in this and, and it's still similar to this day when we 
talk about NCAA and, and player compensation, many of them come off as being flat out wrong, hypocritical, or or, or on the contrary, they they did admirable deeds like like Al McGuire did uh, uh, when 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 it comes to Terry Pluto's book Loose Balls and the 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 stories described there. But I, what I wanted to bring up was was the boss move George Mikan pulled off when when he contacted the NCAA coaches association and uh, said he he would make uh, information he had from his teammate from from his uh, players in in the league uh, the information they had given them about uh, scholarships and then and then the the payoffs they had given they had been given cars and that uh, Mike threatened that he, he would make this information public if they didn't back off and uh, and uh, right after that, uh, the 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 letter that uh, was given out that ABA people were banned from campuses was withdrawn. So uh, a lot of uh, a lot of people were in, involved in the scandal. And uh, yeah, when when reading back, uh, reading it like 40 years later, you you notice that that some were in, were in it for their own good, uh, and some realized the the larger issue at hand. Yeah, absolutely. Um... So, and, and Haywood was, you know, the he was the MVP and rookie of the year. Nineteen seventy was was a dominant player in the league. Absolutely ready for the uh, ABA and and would uh, jump to the NBA soon and would be, you know, for the next four or five years would absolutely be an, you know, um, would be an all star and an, and an all NBA caliber player. So he wanted uh, in early nineteen seventy, yes, Denver to renegotiate his contract because there was a lot of deferred money in it, and we'll get to the the dog off plan and deferred money. Kind of explain that in just a little bit, but he and Denver agreed to a six year deal totaling an estimated one point nine million, and then later on in that summer, he consulted with his with an attorney, and then uh, basically the contract didn't give what he thought it gave and he uh gave written notice that he considered the contract to be invalid and then december of 1970 he signed a six-year 1.5 million dollar with seattle despite the fact that the nba considered him to be ineligible because he his draft class had not graduated yet so that was obviously a huge mess and and haywood uh he just he describes it as i was fighting a three-front war for a year the nba didn't want me to come play in their league the ABA wanted to keep me in their league, and the NCA was mad because they knew they'd be hurt if I won. Yeah, and he was absolutely, absolutely worth the fight. Uh, his rookie year never, never stops uh, astounding me. He first off, he clocked uh, three thousand eight hundred eight minutes for the season. The only other person to play more than thirty eight hundred was Wilt, who did it three times. And then in the playoffs, his playing time went up from. Uh, Forty-five minutes to forty-seven minutes per game, as did his contributions on the court. He averaged an, an insane thirty-six point seven points and almost twenty rebounds per game, and that that just speaks perfectly to how ready he actually was for for, for professional basketball to play basically without any rest for eighty-four games at the age of twenty and post those numbers and help the team to probably its best season uh, in, in franchise existence before. Larry Brown and crew came along. It, it, it's very impressive, and uh, the, he he rightfully was overmatched with, with the Denver team by the Los Angeles Stars in, in the division finals. And then uh, we don't need to get into that. But yeah, that first clash, first round clash between Haywood and Rick Barry is one of the many reasons why not having ABA footage sucks. Because a, a seven game series of Haywood averaging 36 and 
Barry putting up 40. I, I wish I could see one of those games. So when you when you have that in mind, you you can understand why everybody wanted a say in this because Spencer Haywood was was really good in his rookie year. Yeah, not to mention, there's, I believe there's a notorious fight in uh, Game 7 of that series where Rick Barry uh, was, I, I believe, thrown out of the game or was at least involved in, you know, uh, in that. So there were a lot of uh, heated tempers as well and a lot of uh, a lot of passion there, I guess you could say. Yeah, as, as, as it usually was in, in any series involving Barry, yes. uh, or at least <laughs> it seems so that every other series there was some fight. Yes, yeah, the ABA and, yeah, the, the, no, no one there was any stranger to, to fights for sure, so... So when Haywood is in Seattle, um, he was forced to miss a lot of games to attend hearings. I think he played something around like 35 games in that season. Every game that he went to, um, the crowds would burst into cheers after the PA announcer would say, Ladies and gentlemen, we have an illegal player on the floor, and the game cannot proceed with this illegal player on the floor. So every, uh, you know, there were dozens of protests of, um, you know, games that he was involved in with the teams protesting that it was, you know, that they should invalidate the result because, um, you know, he was doing this. The league sued Seattle from signing him. He eventually was given a temporary injunction to be able to play while, you know, it went through the appeals court. And then finally, in March of 71, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled in Haywood's favor, allowed him to remain in the a- in the NBA, and then cleared the way for underclassmen to be able to declare for the NBA draft. So really, obviously, a far-reaching um, um, case in terms of, uh, you know, giving freedom of player movement and also freedom for um, the underclassmen to be able to declare for the draft for, you know, not having to wait your 22 years old. Um, and then Denver and Haywood then reached an out-of-court settlement, clearing the way for him to remain in Seattle, where he would he did produce well. The team didn't have a lot of success, and he had a lot of clashing with uh, Bill Russell and ended up um, being traded and spiraling down, unfortunately, as he dealt with drug issues and um, other things in the late 70s. But, you know, he certainly was a important transcendent player, really, um, you know, in a lot of ways, a reflection of kind of a lot of what the 70s were all about in terms of pro basketball. Yeah, and and the person who deserves a footnote in, in all of this mess, when, when looking back at some of these recruiting bars, is uh, Agent Al Rouse, who helped Spencer. He later on helped uh, guys like Jim McDaniels and, and Charlie Scott jump leagues. And it, it almost seemed like extortion. He'd take a young star who was suddenly unhappy with his contract for one reason or another, and he went to the owner to re- renegotiate a new one, which consisted of heavy demands. So some of them even and silly, like asking for an immediate 50 grand bonus for Jim McDaniels for the aggravation of having to live in North Carolina. So when, when you consider his role in all of this, it, it uh, yeah, an- another one of the movers and shakers who, who, played a huge role and perhaps uh, messed up a career of, of a young guy who was at that point only 20 or 21 years old and suddenly he's booed in every NBA arena. So yeah, not, not, not the best look for guys like that. No, because now because of the, you know, the way the contracts first, you know, there's so much more money and the way they're being structured and the way that now players have um, more agency, rather than just kind of accepting whatever the team that drafted them has to give them. Now they're, you know, this is attracting agents out of the woodwork, you know, some of whom are, you know, reasonably ethical, some many of whom are not. Um, and there's a lot of accusations, some of that which have been um, 
you know, at least substantiated that, you know, agents were being paid under the table by the ABA for sending their clients there. There, I think there were similar um, accusations in the NBA as well. And, um, you know, this is all sort of connected to what we talked about with the, you know, the, the Dogoff plan and how it affected salaries with the the Dogoff plan was basically an ability for the ABA teams to play to, to, to pay salaries that looked really large, but only a small amount of it was in real cash. The other part of it, the, the majority of it in many cases was in deferred payments that would go into a mutual fund that would start paying out 20, 25, 30 years into the future. So uh, it was certainly, it, it, it was guaranteed in a sense because it was a, um, you, you know, it, there was a, I believe a Prudential was an insurance company that, um, was you know it was go, it was going to something where even if the ABA folded it was it was money that was going into but certainly in Haywood's case he felt that you know he the he was not given a straight talk on um you know how this would all work and I, I wonder how many of the players especially in the you know early years when the deferred money is a new thing whether how much they knew what they were getting into um you know if their agents were leading them astray or you know at a certain point i think it would have to word would have had to get gotten out that a lot of these are you know the reason the the money looks so good is because it's deferred payments yeah and a move like this whether they were right or not highlights how more business savvy and and just considerate the aba people were i mean uh they wouldn't have let uh, someone of dave bing's caliber uh been grossly uh, underpaid and uh, unrespected by 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 his by the owner of that respective team and, and just and just in just so in the in a similar vein they knew how to win these uh, wars for players and and offered them contracts which looked uh, perhaps better than they actually were on paper but which still looked good enough to to sign you know, even if a lot of the money is deferred, you're still paying more than they were getting in the NBA contract. So you're, you, you know, maybe it's not as much as it seems, but it's still more than you're making now. So there's obviously an appeal to that. And um, uh, agent Ron Grinker in Loose Balls kind of illustrates what the issue would be as the ABA paid in paper money, but the NBA responded to that by paying in real dollars, and it nearly bankrupted both leagues. And you can sort of look at the, um, the the way that the salaries escalated from um, Curtis Harris of Probes History uh, tweeted a chart out that, you know, in 68 in the NBA, there were four players who had um, salaries of over $100,000. Uh, three seasons later in 71, it's 18 players who have over $100,000 a year. And the median um, salary goes from 25000 to 40000 And... Um, David Friedman at 22nd uh, timeout uh, says that the average player salary ro- rose from 35000 1970 to 180000 a decade later. Um, however, franchise values also went up more than 600% during the same period. So as the salaries are getting larger, the franchise values are going up at an even higher rate. Now, you know, that that may not be evenly distributed throughout, you know, the, the, the leagues at the time. I mean, the, the Los Angeles Lakers and the New York Nets, New York Knicks, excuse me, their, you know, franchise values may be going up much more than the Kansas City Kings were. But it's still, you know, the, the growth wasn't just in player salaries. The whole business was growing. Yeah, I, I do wonder whether the NBA was, was simply reckless or did they not know about the the dog off plan because because it's, it seems odd given the fact that the aba knew so much about what was 
going on in the NBA and the, and the inner workings of that league. So when uh, Agent Ron Grinker said that line about the NBA responding to paying in real dollars, I, I do wonder what was the motivation behind that. The ABA teams and executives sort of worked cooperatively to sort of get the players to the best situation that they could get, where the NBA teams were you know, not really cooperating in that way. So I, I think that the, the fact that the um, you know they weren't working toward they weren't working collectively as much. They were you know they were bidding against each other more. Where the ABA players, you know, the ABA teams weren't necessarily doing that as much with players. And yeah, I mean, I know the Dogoff plan was secret for a while. I, I also wonder if there were NBA rules that were collectively bargained with the union that probably limited the amount of deferred competition that they could do. I know later on in the late 70s and early 80s, there are issues with players being owed deferred compensation and some teams are in serious financial trouble because of that. But I don't know if maybe the rules of the NBA limited the amount of deferred competition that, that you could have at the time. I couldn't really actually find out anything for that specifically. Yeah, I guess so. Those those two both are uh, good points, uh, especially when, when we'll talk about uh, David Thompson later on. But when, when the attitude in the ABA was that I believe Virginia had the rights for him, and then when they found out that Denver uh, had made uh, uh, had contacted David and then basically was was ready to sign him out of college, uh, Virginia's reaction was, "Oh, that that's that's really great. Yeah, you go at him and have him." And when nothing like that could have happened in the NBA, where you're bidding against each other. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Um, so August of 1969, Rick Barry, he signs a five-year deal with the, with the Warriors, but he's prevented to, from jumping back after a, uh, legal battle. Um, the, however, he, he does eventually, um, force his way out of, um, uh, he plays a year in Washington and then forces his way from Virginia to the New York Nets, where he, he actually ends up being happy, but then, um, as that that contract does take effect with the Warriors eventually, um, after he resolves his ABA contract, he ends up uh, going back to the NBA, and, he, and he's I think okay with it because he did sort of want to play with the Warriors. But it was sort of a an instance where every time that Barry wanted to wanted to play in one team, he ended up having to go to the team that he didn't want to play for. Like he he has like four consecutive years where he's you know wants to play in one place but there's a legal maneuver that keeps him from going you know to the place that he wants to go and he ends up going to a different place so just uh very emblematic of what was going on at, at the time yeah he has the weirdest career arc of, of any superstar i guess because uh, he followed up uh, the the year of averaging 35 points at the age of 22 with Announcing for a year, playing for the Oakland Oaks, who won the title without him because he, he injured his knee, and then changing a, a team uh, effectively. Although the Washington, Washington, I guess, was the the same franchise, he effectively played for two other teams the next two seasons. Then, so, uh, of course, some stars have uh, injury problems in their early twenties, like Derrick Rose or Penny Hardaway, and some. Uh, get off the tracks for other reasons but uh, the rick barry career arc is, is really a unique one yeah yeah for a you know guy who's in top 25 top 30 all time that is a unusual situation 
um, and really only could have happened, you know, right around this time with just the the way that things were changing. You know, things sort of stabilized later where um, players were, you know, pretty much going to stay with their original team for at least, you know, five, six years unless, you know, under extraordinary circumstances. But uh, in any case, um, sort of a funny um, aspect to this NBA-ABA war is the the – ABA decides to go after four of the best referees in the NBA, Earl Strom, John Vanek, Norm Drucker, and uh, Joe Gushu. A, uh, gave, them a, gave them a whole lot more money and a whole lot more um, bonuses and, you know, and, and offering you know, health insurance and a pension plan, which they didn't have in the NBA. So it really was an interesting um, move to go. I mean, I don't, I don't really know how much of a difference it made. I mean, it helped the quality of play in the quality of the officiating everyone you know talked a lot about how much of a difference it made with these guys and how it did hurt the nba in that way but um it's more of an interesting footnote than anything that particularly mattered in the long haul but just as a you know just just as as how these fights you come over what end up being relatively small petty things um you know was just another way that the aba was was able to stick it to the nba and also improve um improve the quality of its refereeing yeah I, I do hope that the motivation for this at least uh, to, to some degree was just try, trying to rub it into to the nba and still still start stealing referees when they were least expecting it so january 1970 the sides resume merger talks um but they do break down. NBA announces expansion instead. Basically, the major issues were the players' union was against the, you know, publicly against the merger at this point. The NBA public, the NBA union, um, and also there was some issues with deciding to, to do with what, what the players who had jumped or who had announced jumps to the ABA, which included Barry, Zemo Beatty, Dave Bing, Billy Cunningham, and Luke Jackson. How to settle the antitrust suits? How much it would cost to get in the league? Lots, lots of things. So. February of 70, there's also more merger talks. Uh, April of 70, there are reports that the merger agreement is near. They say the the terms were the ABA would keep a separate entity for at least three years before official merger and realignment. There would be a championship series between the ABA and NBA champions. Uh, The ABA would pay um, $11.25 million to uh, join the uh, league. I I believe it was 10 teams, everybody but Virginia was included in that. And... uh, this is the point in which 14 NBA players file what is known as the Oscar Robertson lawsuit to block the merger on antitrust grounds to do away with the reserve clause. Yeah, and this would be quite the the different history in, in regards to both leagues if if all would have happened so successfully and so easily. And uh, it's it's literally pretty much impossible to imagine given given the way. Given the things we know about the ABA's history and how the, the league had to carry on for for another few years, so uh, everything ending happily in 1973 is, uh, seems odd from 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 uh, from at least from my standpoint. Sure. The um, uh, so the votes are actually in June of 1970. The NBA votes 13 to four in favor of the merger. ABA's 11 uh, 11 to nothing. Um, and the ABA only would have paid $1.25 million over 10 years, which obviously was a much better deal than they ended up getting in uh, in 76. Not They were, of course, all in favor of it. It was the Players Union that blocked it, and rightfully so. They you know, they, they got to, to do away with the reserve clause and were able to uh, 
enhance their rights, you know, through that lawsuit. But um, you, it would have been interesting in a basketball sense um, to go back and see what would have happened with a merged NBA ABA league um, at that time. Although you miss out, you know, there's so much, of course, great things in the ABA itself that you probably would have been missed out on. You know, Julius Irving, you know, he probably wouldn't have been signed right out of. Um, uh, he he wouldn't have gone in the situation that he went into, and he's, you know obviously lots of things that um would have changed because of that. So I'm glad the history is the way that it, that it was, but uh, it is still is interesting to kind of look to look back and th- come up with alternative scenarios of how things would have been in uh, if the merger occurred then. Yeah, and I, I suppose much more ABA players would be Hall of Famers by now, but uh, who knows? I I also preferred the way of, of uh, ABA going on for, for a few years because that definitely seems like a lot more fun. Yes, yeah. Although I, I suppose the ABA that would have existed with the NBA may have had a slightly more television uh, coverage, which, um, but 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 still, I think the uh, I think the legend that it created was better than anything we could have seen, perhaps. So, 1970 was a stacked draft. Um, the consensus All-Americans, the NBA, they got Bob Lanier, Pete Maravich, Calvin Murphy, and Jimmy Collins. The ABA, with its uh, strongest uh, grab, uh, Dan Issel, Rick Mount, and Charlie Scott. Uh, other notable players for the NBA, Rui Tanjanovic, Dave Cowens, Tiny Archibald, Sam Lacey, and Jeff Petrie. And for the ABA, Billy Paltz, uh, Jim Ard, who was the number six overall pick in the NBA, and Ralph Simpson. So um, a lot of these players you know that went to the ABA would have been high picks but it was pretty well known that they were already going to the ABA like Dan Issel for instance was picked in the second round and he would have been very likely a top five pick had it not been for you know the realization that he that he wanted to go to Kentucky and that you know NBA teams were aware that they you know picking him in the first round would have been a waste of a pick so the actual and until we get into like 74 75 the actual number of times in which a really highly picked player ends up uh, in the NBA ends up going into the ABA is relatively low because usually they had a good sense ahead of time of whether they were going to come to the NBA or not. Yeah, Dan, Dan Issel had that uh, Kentucky connection and I, I guess it was pretty well known that he was leaning uh, to go to, to the Colonels. Then uh, out of out of this group of guys, uh, Charlie, Charlie Scott is is the one who doesn't necessarily associate with, with the ABA at, le- at least for me because of the way he jumped over. So that that's one of the guys who the, the ABA lost pretty pretty early. And again, thanks to thanks to the same agent, uh, Jim Ross. Oh, excuse me, Al Ross. Yeah, <laughs> not the wrestling announcer, Jim Ross, but uh... <laughs> <laughs> certainly not. Um, so. October 1970, uh, Carolina signed Atlanta's Joe Caldwell. Rich and I did an episode looking at um, Caldwell and Cunningham along with Will Chamberlain and some other NBA stars' time in the ABA. So it didn't necessarily go that well, but that was a fairly significant um, uh, get for the Cougars at the time. Um, Another uh, former Hawk who uh, was not happy with the situation in uh, St. Louis slash Atlanta and ended up leaving... um, and then in ni- November 1970, the um, NBA announced it was ending efforts to get the merger approved in Congress. So with the Oscar Robertson lawsuit hanging along the uh, lines and, you know, with the issues going on there that, um, you know, is is held off for a while. Um, December 1970, as we mentioned, Spencer Haywood officially jumping to Seattle and signing that contract. Um, 
and uh, January 1971, uh, Billy Cunningham tries to get out of his Cougars contract before he even signs it because of a uh, missed payment. The courts end up ruling in favor of Carolina, and he has to uh, go there for the uh, for, for the next season. Uh, also in that month, ABA commissioner, the the new commissioner Jack Dolph, who replaced George Mikan, who uh, had was was signed because of his connection to the television industry and was um, made commissioner in the hopes of getting a television deal, left his briefcase open during the 1971 All-Star Game and reporters saw, saw signed contracts for Jim McDaniels of Western Kentucky and Howard Porter of Villanova, who were two players, you know, in college basketball and who were, um, you know, uh, their, their teams, I believe, were go, going into the NCAA tournament that um that year so certainly an embarrassment to uh to, to have signed contracts for those guys who were still playing in college yeah jack dolph uh, apparently not hired as a commissioner because of his bookkeeping talents no uh, we can certainly say that much no um so uh march of 71 is when the supreme court rules in favor of haywood finally to be able to play in the league uh, May of 1971 is the first NBA ABA All Star Game, which uh, we talked about in our previous episode of um, uh, looking at the on the court battles. Uh, the 1971 drafts, uh, an, a, another strong one. Um, consensus All Americans uh, for the NBA: Austin Carr, Dean Meminger, Sidney Wicks, Ken Durrett, Curtis Rowe, and Howard Porter. For the ABA, um, most of these guys, again, not technically drafted, but signed with the league. Uh, Artis Gilmore, Jim McDaniels, John Roach, and Johnny Newman, who was only a sophomore. Other notable players, um, Elmore Smith, Randy Smith, and Freddie Brown. And for the ABA, Julius Irving, George McGinnis, and uh, and Darnell Hillman, who was the number eight overall pick in the uh, NBA. So, um, and a lot of those were, you know, Irving, it was a signing as opposed to a draft. And, you know, the other players, or like I said, it may have been one of those secret drafts, but um, the, the ABA was always doing things like that. We're having secret drafts for uh, players and, you know, they, they, they were much looser and freer with the drafts than the NBA was. Despite the quick downfall of, of Jim McDaniels and uh, Johnny Newman in a way as well, I I reckon this might be the, the first year where the ABA won, won the overall battle for talent. But between Julius Irving and Artis Gilmore and George McGinnis, I, I do believe that they have the uh, overall better players here. Oh, and, oh yeah. And yeah, Austin Carr had some some bad injury luck, and then uh, Randy Smith was a was a pretty good player as well. But uh, they they don't stand up against the the guys ABA got. So, um, June of 71, the NBA agrees to allow hardship cases into the draft. Uh, September of 71, the Senate subcommittee hearings on the merger begin. So even though they're not necessarily actively pursuing it, they're still, uh, it's it's going on in Congress and there are, there are hearings. I know John Havlicek, Oscar Robertson testified, I'm sure many other players, um, and, you know, NBA and ABA executives were, um, part of them. I, I have not had a chance to dig deeply into the research on that. Um, I, I am a basketball obsessive, but history obsessive, but not quite that uh, deep as far (laughs) as yet. Um, September of 71 was the the NBA had a hardship supplemental draft to allow a few players who were, um, you know, hardship cases to be able to uh, be drafted before they would fully be integrated in 72. Uh, The players who were drafted were Nate Williams to the Royals, who was a journeyman who managed to play 642 games without making the playoffs in his career, which is a 
uh, would be up there in the record. I, I, I know it's not the top, but it's uh, it would be among I'm sure the top ten for a number of um, games without being in the players playoffs at all. Next was Tom Payne of the Hawks, who was the first uh, black player at the University of Kentucky, and he played 29 NBA games before he was arrested and later convicted of being a serial rapist, which is obviously unfortunate. Um, Cyril Baptiste of the Warriors, he never played in the NBA because of a heroin addiction. Uh, Phil Chenier of the Bullets, who was a very good shooting guard for the um, for the Bullets, three-time All-Star, made three finals teams, and was really could have had a better career. Was He was felled by injuries right as he was hitting his prime around 27-28 and is now a broadcaster for the Wizards. And then finally, Joe Hammond with the Lakers, and he was a streetball legend, one of the greats of in Rucker Park history. Supposedly didn't sign with the Lakers because he could make more money dealing drugs, and he later had, a, I believe, an 11-year prison sentence for uh, for dealing drugs. So um, not the best of luck for most of the guys on this list, unfortunately. Yeah, it's odd how you can find the sort of these... Uh, unfortunate things that happened to all of them. Even even Phil Chenier, who was a very good player, I I just uh, the, the first association I have with him is uh, him announcing a, a bad Wizards performance and just being depressed over the fact that he is going through another season of this. Yeah, September 1971 are the first interleague exhibition games that we talked about. Uh, the players' union in the NBA also rejected a settlement offer to try to get the to get that obstacle taken care of before they can do a merger. January 1972, and this doesn't really related to the NBA and ABA, but I found it fascinating anyway. There, during Senate merger hearings, uh, Senator Sergeant Shriver charges Royals owners Max and Jeremy Jacobs with ties to organized crime. Um, they were also revealed to be illegally concealing ownership of a Las Vegas casino. Now, the Royals ended up selling it to a Kansas City group uh, two months later after this. Um, I will say there's a whole lot of interesting reading on this subject, including some much more contemporary things, if you uh, if you search for Max and Jeremy Jacobs. And I'll leave it at that, but that is uh, quite a, something I never heard before and, and quite a little bit of a fascinating thing. Yeah, it sounds like I, I might be going down that rabbit hole tonight because uh, this is also the first time I have heard of this. And uh, yeah, I had never... Uh, I had never heard about uh, any organized crime ties in regards to NBA owners, so that's quite interesting. That's the end of part two. Thanks for checking us out. You can find us on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you listen to your podcasts. We are part of the Step Back Network presented by Fansided, which you can find on iTunes and wherever you listen to your podcasts as well. Also on fansided.com, the Step Back you can, can be found there. You can find us on Twitter and Facebook at Over and Back NBA. Stay tuned for part three, which will be coming soon. We will talk about a secret plot between an NBA and ABA owner to destroy a uh, secret contract by Bob McAdoo, signed illegally when he was in college. Also, we'll talk about uh, how the ABA tried to woo Bill Walton and lots of other stuff. So, Check this out. Goodbye. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. 
That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.